welcome back to another Two Guys, One Topic interview. Our topic last week was famous paintings. And so we had to set about finding ourselves a topic expert, didn't we, Liam? Exactly. And I think we're getting better at finding our experts as time goes on. This week, we've managed to get an interview with a television documentary producer, presenter, a two-time Critic of the Year award winner, and the Sunday Times' art critic. So joining us for an interview to talk all about our famous paintings is art critic Valdemar Janoszek. Valdemar, thank you very much for joining our podcast. It's a joy. Always good to talk about art. It's the best thing in the world. You both know that. And um, by the end of this podcast, I suspect you'll know it even more. That's great. We love that. So as our listeners will know, this week our topic was famous paintings. Liam and I picked four famous paintings, the first four that came to our mind. And we have our topic expert in Valdemar to ask some questions about the paintings and maybe just those bits of our research and reading that we weren't able to answer. I'm seeing how Valdemar can help us. What we like to do is, before we jump into the questions, is maybe just ask a little bit about yourself, Valdemar, and how did you get started and interested in art in the first place? Um, Oh, I had a cousin who um, uh, studied art and went to Winchester College of Art. Um, and he used to come around to our house. I, I grew up in a very Polish society, and it was a, a bit sort of dank and post-war. Um, this cousin turned up, and um, he used to draw stuff. And, um, you know, art can feel like a miracle if you're a kid. And yes. someone comes along and does like a perfect drawing of a face or a tree or, or Jesus Christ. Um, you think, how the hell did he do that? And so um, it just became both something that really excited me uh, when I was a kid, but also it seemed to sort of provide an alternative almost to, to daily life. Um, you know, we grew up in quite harsh circumstances on a camp and stuff. And just this this sudden flash of joy and brilliance um, illuminated things. And it, it made it just made it all exciting. So I owe a lot to him. Yeah, Tad Manje, still at work, uh, lives in Taunton. Great artist. If you're looking for an artist in Somerset, Tad Manje is your man. Brilliant. We love that. That's great to hear. It's always always nice to hear that where that passion came from in the first place. Um, so I guess the first piece of art we started with was perhaps the most famous piece. We started with the Mona Lisa, but the more like the first thing we googled is why is the Mona Lisa so famous? But it seemed like there wasn't really an actual answer per se. I just wondered if if you've got an opinion about just how is it that the Mona Lisa is, is such a, a famous piece of art. Well, I mean, there are several reasons, as you as you just said, but I think there is one overwhelming reason. Um, so let's just go through the several reasons just to just to get everybody up to speed. Um, so it, it, it's been on show since what is it? I mean, something like seventeen ninety seven um, in the Louvre, right? And mm-hmm. I don't need to tell you how famous the Louvre is. I mean, it, it's just the world's most visited and most famous museum. So. Location-wise, um, because Leonardo da Vinci travelled a lot and he ended up in in France working for the French king, um, so his art 
uh, sort of ended up in France almost by default and, and through various um, circumstances it ended up in the Louvre right for a while it hung in Napoleon's bedroom even but then it ended yes. up at the Louvre so that's like that's that's that is the most famous museum in the world so that's already a big start um, but strangely enough it really wasn't that famous a painting for most of the 19th century um, a few people had heard of it, and of course, it's a, it's a marvelous thing. So it's not as if you're going to miss it entirely. But its fame was nothing like the fame that it has today. And the really big change came uh, when it was stolen. So um, in 1911, um, I made a film about this actually in, in, a, in a series I do called The Art Mysteries, um, and it was very interesting. In 1911, this guy who had previously worked as a kind of builder at the Louvre, he'd, he'd been involved in. Um, building a case in which the Mona Lisa was displayed. Uh, but he's an Italian, right? So he's an Italian <laughs> guy called Perugia. Um, he, he seems to have been driven by some obsessive idea that um, the Mona Lisa was an Italian masterpiece. So what the hell was it doing in France? It needed repatriating. So he decided to repatriate it. So he walked into the Louvre and basically stayed there, hid in the toilets, came out and, <laughs> and, and came out with it under, under his coat and stole it, right? But the thing is that this coincided almost exactly, this 1911, with the growth of um, newspaper media um, and inventions of things like sort of colour front pages and okay. colour lithography. So um, it became a, a newspaper thing. I mean, it's like people got were interested in newspapers and suddenly the only thing the newspapers were talking about was the Mona Lisa. And there it was on all the covers. And so she became a kind of instant celebrity. Um, and people followed the story, and later they, they found her again, and she was tracked down to this bedroom at this hotel in Florence, etc. So you know how even today, anytime there's a kind of crime story or something gets yes. stolen or art fraud, it creates a big international yeah. fuss. And this happened at exactly the right time because it happened just when the whole explosion of newspaper things were happening. So that that shifted her from a, from being a painting that lots of art historians and a few a few others loved into one that everybody had heard about. And of course, from, since, since then, it's just gone on and on and on and on. There isn't a week goes by when somebody doesn't say something about the Mona Lisa, which makes it even more famous. Yes. And didn't Picasso also get tangled up in being accused of stealing it but was never charged that's right this was a terrible involvement of picasso yeah he had a, a friend the poet apollinaire who um uh, who who probably did have some sort of plan to, to to steal her from the mona lisa from the louvre or certainly something like that and picasso was involved in it the thing is uh, in the great picasso biography that John Richardson wrote, which is the great book about Picasso, he reveals that Picasso did actually steal something else from the Louvre. Oh, wow. Picasso did steal the head of an Iberian sculpture. Because in those days, you could walk into the Louvre and you know, nothing nothing like the sort of security you get today. Yes. Um, and Picasso, obviously, is a relatively, even then in, in his early days, he was pretty well known. So he could wonder about the Louvre. He stole this Iberian head, which he kept in a wardrobe in his green, grotty little studio flat. Um, and this this seemed to get mixed up with, with the thought that that someone had stolen the Mona Lisa. So inevitably okay. he was he was suspected. So he was innocent of that crime, but he wasn't innocent of the other crime, which is an interesting case, isn't it? But of course, <laughs> once these things again, once that started circulating a bit, you know, Picasso may have stolen it. That just increased the fame. Yes. Um, and so, it, so so little of her fame concerns um, her quality as a painting and, and whether it's a great picture. So much of it depends on other sorts of stories, you know, about, about the being stolen and these days about how yeah. impossible it is to see it because the queues are 10 miles long. And there's always other sort of things accrued to it. And no, there isn't a painting on your list, really, that is there purely because it's a great painting, 
all of them have these circumstances around them that, yes. that break through the barrier, you know, so people get to hear about them. They don't hear about many paintings, but the ones they do hear about are usually there for a reason. Yes, no, understood. We, we were reading about the position that Mona Lisa has sat in was also, is it revolutionary for the time? It wasn't seen before, is that correct? Having that three-quarter pose wasn't um, something that painters traditionally did? Yeah, sort of, sort of. Um, the, most Italian portraiture from the Renaissance, which is this the great period when you're supposed to have invented the best art ever, you know, the Renaissance is, is the blue chip period of art history. But most early Italian portraiture was actually profiles. The Italians really weren't that into portraits. Um, they were more into sort of sy symbolic religious pictures, mythologies. Okay. And of course, they did do portraits, but they, they, they weren't really into them. But the people who were into them, um, were the Flemish painters, who were the, basically the guys that invented oil paints. And so the Flemish painters, through various trading routes, um, and we know that, that, that the Mona Lisa was probably this, this, the wife of, a, of, a, of, a, of an Italian cloth merchant, um, but through these sort of trading concerns, uh, lots of Flemish paintings ended up in Italy and vice versa. And the Flemings, the Flemish painters, they did this sort of stuff. So they didn't just do profiles. They did very naturalistic portraits of people sitting in these three-quarter poses, which have, you know, very portrait-like. Okay. So she was a sort of international creation in that sense, which made her stand out again a little bit because she was a lot, she was different from the paintings that preceded her in Italy. Uh, Liam, can I hand over the next part to you? Because this is something which I struggled to pronounce. When we hey, actually did, I our... mean, I can pronounce it. <laughs> we um, did the podcast this week, but I'll, I'll hand this part to you, Liam. Are you Another going to go for my name, my surname? Is that what it is, Liam? <laughs> no, oh, I did Let's say this. That. So, just quickly, I teach, and obviously, I do teach a lot of. We have lots of Polish, so I did have a guess, Janoszak. Yeah, not too bad actually. Janoszak. The, the trick with Polish names, right, is to think of the Z's as H's. So it's S Z C H is like. S-H-C-H. So it's Januszczak. That's very good, Liam. Very good. <laughs> well, we, di we digress. No, this is, <laughs> there is another word. Um, another thing we'd read about um, the, the actual painting, because we just tried to make ourselves sound a little bit more knowledgeable about actual art and techniques and things, is that he'd used a technique called sfumato. Yeah. Which is like a blending, like he didn't use outlines and he blended them. And at the time... That was like brand new and not something anyone had seen. So suddenly it was like, whoa, look what he's done. And now everybody does it. Is, is yeah. that accurate? Uh, um, he did use sfumato, which is the sort of Italian word for shadow, right? So okay. um, what, what it is, is basically blurring the edges of it. So, mm -hmm. you know, like if you do a bad, have you ever tried char charcoal drawing and you do a bad charcoal drawing, you, what you'll find is if you sort of rub it a, a bit around the edges, it, it looks better because you can't really see the mistakes. It, <laughs> it, it sort of softens it <laughs> and makes it sort of imprecise. Um, and so Leonardo developed this technique of painting. He used a lot of glazes, which are very subtle ways of painting with um, bits of oil colour that's... That, dipped into these 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 different varnishes and glazes and what what that does is it creates mysterious shadows if you like um and you know that you know everybody loves a mystery liam you know when yeah. you don't know something you just want desperately to find out about it so you've got this painting of this woman who maybe she's smiling but and sometimes she looks like she is but other times you're not sure she is and that's because the imprecision of the picture the imprecision of her okay 
of her expression uh, achieved through this technique of sfumato, which is a sort of basically adding shadows, adding imprecision to it, so it's not really clear cut, um, creates this sense of mystery. And here, here's a great quote, right? This is, this is, have you heard of Mark Rothko, the brilliant um, American abstract expressionist of the 1950s? Uh, no, I haven't. Now that you're interested in art, you're, you're gonna, you're, your next podcast is going to be a Mark Rothko special, I hope, you know, even if it's <laughs> a few weeks aside. But Rothko, who painted these pictures, which are basically fogs of color, that's all there was in it. He said a brilliant thing. He said, um, there is more power in telling little than in telling all. And I think about nice. that. If nice. you don't reveal all your secrets, people yes. want to know, you know. And yes. um, Leonardo was the absolute master of this. His faces have these expressions that no one can quite agree on. They're never sure about any of it. And those little bits of mystery achieved through this, this technique of sfumato, which basically, you know, the smile, the eyes, the face, it's just not quite 100% precise what, what you're looking at. You know, that creates this air of mystery, which, which tugs people in and involves them and, and intrigues them. And one of the things we were wondering about that, is that deliberate? So Leonardo was doing that deliberately, was he? It's not wasn't just his painting style then ended up <laughs> doing that. Was he deliberately trying to create that intrigue of is she smiling, is she not? Or is it an accidental optical illusion? I think I, I, no, this is a cop out, but I, I think it's both. I, I think he definitely had um, ambitions to, because you look at all his paintings, they've all got these funny smiles. Mm. And you know, he was an expert or, uh, on, on the, you know, everything. Everybody knows that Leonardo was a great scientist and did all this stuff, researcher, the human figure, the human face, the, everything. And one of the things he researched, researched was, was human expression. Um, so he, he knew how expressions convey emotions and things. Um, but with with this picture, um, one of the issues with it is that it's it's not we don't what we see now isn't what he painted. So, for example, we know that she originally had eyebrows and eyelashes, but but because these were painted um, uh, in a very uh, because of these glazes and things in a kind of fragile form, at some point that those were cleaned off, right? Okay. So we now see her without her eyebrows and without her eyelashes, which again it just adds this layer of strangeness to her. So I think although he definitely would have painted her with this curious you know, expression. You know, people's smiles are, you know, look at Lady Di. One of the reasons she was famous is that that nervous little smile of hers and people couldn't take their eyes off her, could yes. they? Because of that, you know, what is she, is she smiling? Is she? He, he was an expert on human expression and knew that that worked. But he was helped later on, as it were, accidentally by the fact that the, the bits of the picture fell off and the bits of the glazes darkened. And so she becomes more and more mysterious as the ages go on, as it were, because of the natural aging process of the picture. So, um, yeah, I think it was a, a, one of the things it was is a happy accident. Because he's, okay. he's, some of his other smiling figures, they, they, they smile so grotesquely. There's a, there's a John the Baptist in the Louvre. Um, and he's smiling, but it's a creepy smile because somehow the aging hasn't done it the big favor that it's done the Mona Lisa. Okay. It just makes it look a bit weird, you know. You know get that smile off your face, mate, you know. Um, <laughs> it, like all art, you know, it's an organic thing. It changes over the centuries. Some pictures get better, some get worse. And this one has unquestionably got better, as it were. Um, I think just to, just to finish the Mona Lisa, I guess, it would be remiss if we didn't ask you as a, as a critic, you know, what, what do you think of the Mona Lisa? Like, do you rate it? Is it as good as it's thought to be? Or, you know, I don't know, thoughts? <laughs> um, <laughs> look, it's a really hard picture to talk about now. I mean, everybody knows it. There's been so many parodies and jokes and posters and all the rest of it. 
Um, it's one of those things where I've seen it hundreds of times, right? And, and I've seen it in very privileged circumstances because I filmed it a few times and then you don't get the crowds you know, pushing mm. you back and all the people clicking their cameras in front of it. Um, and all the stuff today, you know, which you go and see it at the Louvre, basically got very little chance of seeing it as a real picture. You just you just go there in order to tick it off your bucket list, you know. Um, yes. But if you do see it as a real picture, I mean, there is a, a an unfathomable mystery to it, and it is a beautiful painting. And you know, it's like one of those things where you, you know, every now and then you just catch it right, and you think, wow, that actually, that you know what, that really is gorgeous. You look at the background, and there's mysterious rocks and lakes and things, and mm. it just starts to haunt. And you think to yourself, in the right circumstance, you could really see this as such a beautiful, interesting picture. Um, but that's so hard to achieve. It's it's too famous now, and, and behind all that bulletproof glass, it's really it's a, it's a difficult trick to pull off. No, mm. understood. No, that, that's good to know. Yeah, thank you. I think that maybe we can then move on nicely to another one of Leonardo's, which is The Last Supper. And... I'd like to start by following that similar thread where you said about Mona Lisa, it's actually worked in her favour, where the eyebrows and the eyelashes of maybe the glazes have come off. One of the surprising things that we found out about The Last Supper is that it's been repaired and had a lot of restoration on it over the years. And there's it's quite likely that there aren't any of da Vinci's original brushstrokes left on it. And um, go on, yeah, yeah, is, is that is that correct? And if so, does that still make it a Da Vinci painting? It's not correct. Um, I, I, okay, I'm sorry to go on about my films, but I did do a film about this one as well. <laughs> so I made a film about all the famous paintings, right? Um, we did a film about The Last Supper. We actually followed the last big restoration of it, which took 20 years. Mm. The last big restoration. It finished in oh, something like the year 2000 or something. It was an um, extraordinarily long-winded and difficult process. Um and to do that restoration, they basically stripped the whole picture down to what was left of the original Leonardo. Um, and that amounted to, to 10 to 15%. Um, wow. And the rest, they essentially repainted. Um, so the thing is that the, the, thing, the things that are important about it, the composition, the arrangement, the people in it, the idea, yes, all those are Leonardo's concepts. Um, the actual handiwork, the, 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 the painting itself, was, was almost from the day it was painted, you know, so badly done that it started to fall off the walls. So um, it, it doesn't represent his original touch, but I still think it completely represents his vision Okay. In the same way as, you know, if, you, if you're a film director, it doesn't mean you have to act out all the roles, does it? You, you know, you can even, you don't even have to be able to work the camera. You yeah. just have the ideas, you know. So in that sense, it, it still represents totally his his concept. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? This great genius of science was actually technically incompetent on, on, on many levels mm. and, and proved it disastrously <laughs> on this particular picture. <laughs> Sounds like they're doing like the, the world's most famous and stressful colour by numbers. Yeah, like they're left with like what sort of there and trying to fill in the blanks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, it is um, it is an absolute wreck. It's an absolute wreck of a picture. But you really you, you wouldn't know that now because it's been so so brilliantly restored. So yeah. you know you're going to see it, and what you see, I mean, I don't know how different is it from what you would have seen 500 years ago. I suspect not really that different because we have so many images of it to, to judge it by, you know, so many other pictures of it, versions yeah. of it, reproductions of it. So you, you, know, you sort of live with it, I reckon. But um, 
it's fascinating how, how badly done it was originally. And we'd read there are well, there are some wild theories about hidden messages in it, and whether the Fibonacci sequence is in there, and and things like this. Um, do you have any thoughts about any of the hidden things, or or not? Yes, I do. They're all bulls. <laughs> They're all absolute bulls. Um, <laughs> we said as much in the podcast. <laughs> we, we thought it sounded like somebody had then come across the Fibonacci sequence and then was looking at the painting and thinking, how can I apply this to the painting somehow and like clutching at straws to do yeah. it? So. Once, it, once it got mentioned in the Da Vinci Code, I mean, that was it really. You're going to have people wondering about all sorts of hidden numerology and stuff forever. Um, listen, it's, a, it's, an, it's, it's an incredibly traditional, straightforward Catholic image. I mean, the, the reason why it's so famous is because pretty much every church in the world has a reproduction of it on their walls, mm -hmm. but for obvious yeah. reasons. I mean, the, last, the idea of the Last Supper is such an important idea in Christianity. And Jesus gathers the apostles together and, and they have their last meal um, and, you know, and they drink the wine and break the bread and all that. Um, so it's a sort of iconic moment in Christianity. So the most iconic image of it is always going to be very popular. Um, but the, 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 I'm sorry to say this, but the, the, the stupid stories about it um, are all based on, on ignorance, really. Um, I mean, there's a, the favorite one is, is the Da Vinci Code one, isn't it, where the, the Apostle St. John, who's seated um, to the right of Jesus or to the left, if you're looking at the picture, yes. right, is the young guy with the long hair. Um, he's he's in, in pretty much every Renaissance picture you ever see, he's represented as a kind of young and handsome guy with long hair because that's what he's, that's what he's referred to in the Bible, the young apostle John, you know? Yes. Um, but then in the Da Vinci Code, he gets turned into Mary Magdalene, yes, who's, yeah. who's God's lover. Um, and they have a child and that baby's still out there somewhere with all his, its, its descendants are and they're all plotting to change mm -hmm. the world and all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And, and really, all you have to do to disprove that is look at lots of Renaissance pictures of the Last Supper uh, and you'll see that St. John is almost always presented as a feminine figure. Um, because what you've got to, you know, if, if you're trying to present 12 people sitting around a table, right, um, Jesus Christ in the middle, that's fairly easy. You stick him in the middle, you give him a beard and a halo. But how do, how do you differentiate all the other apostles? You know, how, how do you make it, in an era when nobody really read that much, how do you make sure that everybody looking at that picture knows who is who? And you do it by using the sort of standard view of what they were. So young John, the apostle, is always represented without a beard and with long hair because yeah. he was young, as opposed to Peter next to him who's got gray hair and a beard because that's how he always appears. Yes. So um, it's, it's, it's actually a lot of fun to be had with Last Suppers, trying to work out who everybody is uh, and, and reading all the sort of signs for them. Um, and the most interesting figure of all is called Judas, Judas Iscariot. Mm -hmm. um, how, are you good on your Bible? You know, you know what the story is, don't you then? Yes. Yeah, we yeah, did. We mentioned that, didn't we? Yes. Yeah, yeah we did. And, it, and where he's, he's, he's reaching, reaching for some bread. bread. Yeah. Yeah. But he's, and he knocks over the salt. He knocks over the salt, which is supposedly... Um, a reference to a sort of some sort of English, uh, some Italian proverb about um, looking over the salt where you're trying to do something. But the see the most important thing about him, right? If you look at that picture again, he's the one who is an absolute Jewish stereotype. Um, he's got a hook nose. He's swarthy. Um, I mean, if 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 people look properly at the Last Supper, they would accuse Leonardo da Vinci of anti-Semitism in this image <laughs> because it's an absolutely standardised image yeah. of Judas 
as a kind of bad Jewish guy who's stolen, is even holding the bag of money in his hand and waving it almost in front of Jesus. Um, so uh, these are the things that artists had to try and deal with at the time, try and find a way through the language of art of, of giving all the right information that you need to be able to understand a painting. Um, so understand who all the characters are, understand what the story is. The story in this is that, is that Judas is about to betray Christ with yes. a kiss. Um, and, and Judas is, is therefore the, the really bad guy amongst the disciples. So it's a pregnant, loaded moment, um, and a moment of high drama. The drama depends on knowing who everybody is, right? Yes. So um, that's what's brilliant about the picture. But it, it, yeah, if, if, if enough people stood up and shouted at Leonardo da Vinci and called him an anti-Semite for his caricature of Judas mm -hmm. in this picture, then you know what? I think that would be heard, and I think these days he would never have been able to get away with it. I'm well, sure of that. No, interesting. One of one of the one of the things that we read that was a it seemed a little bit farcical was that the room was used had different uses over the years. It was used as a, a prison cell at, at one point, and then they decided that they needed to put a doorway in the middle of the room, and they cut off part of Jesus's feet underneath the table. Which um, I suppose, looking back, maybe wasn't the best idea on a Da Vinci painting. Yeah, I mean, it's quite common. Um, there's loads of paintings that uh, people have put doors through and windows. Oh, have they? Oh, yeah. Because it's, I think, although it's not a, a, a pure fresco, right? You know, you know that one of the problems yes. with it is it's not a fresco. So fresco is this brilliant technique. I think you're going to come onto it in a minute with the Michelangelo. Yes. A fresco is, is this beautiful permanent technique where you put colour into plaster and it stays there basically forever, or at least for a long, long time. But Leonardo da Vinci, what he did here was he painted... Um, on plaster using oil paint and tempera. So it was a, a technique that was very untried and turned out to be completely hopeless because this stuff started falling off the wall <laughs> yeah. as soon as it had been done, right? But um, it, it, it was painted for um, the Duke of Milan at the time, so the Sforza family, for this new religious setup he was, he was, he was, he was funded and was building. Um, but then when they turned it into a refectory, um, which is what it is now. So when you go and see it now, you, you walk into basically a dining room, right? And the monks had eaten their dinners in this dining room. And at the far wall, this great big wall, you see the Last Supper. And of course it fits because you're in a refectory, you're in a dining room um, for the monks. And you're looking at this picture of Christ at a big dining table surrounded by the disciples. So it really fits well. Um, but when they changed the use of the room into a refectory and to make it appropriate, um, you know, the doors weren't all in the right place. I mean, you can't get from the kitchen to the <laughs> dining room by going all the way around the back. You know, you've got yes. to, you need a front door, don't you? So, <laughs> so things got moved around and the art, you know, but Leonardo da Vinci wasn't as famous then as he is now. So of course. Um, they, they, they had less qualms about, about, yes. about changing the art. And I mean, so many pictures have been cut up, moved, taken out, shifted, altered, repainted. I mean, very little art today is, is what was there when it was painted. Oh, wow. I didn't realise that. Mm. So actually, it was a nice time to move on, I guess, because you sort of mentioned it there. So the third painting we looked at this week, or the first piece, third piece of art, was the creation of Adam. Um, you know, we just really famously, you know, the two fingers touching. Like, oh, sorry, I've got my pen. Um, yeah, and that, that came straight into our head. And I, as we were reading about it, we found it, there was a couple of, like, thoughts about what it actually depicts. And I wondered if you, you could just give us your thoughts on, on what is being, or what you think, I guess, is being depicted at that point. Um, 
it's the creation of Adam, but that means the creation of humanity. So, you know, you're looking at this incredibly big moment in my past, your past, everybody's past, when God uh-huh. creates the first human being. Um, and the way that Michelangelo decided to depict it is to have God reaching out his finger, as it were, shooting this magic impulse of life, sort of lightning bolt of life, into the finger of Adam, this handsome Adam figure. That's, they're in quite similar poses. God's up on a cloud, but Adam's on the ground. But they're, mm-hmm. they're joined by a sort of reclining sense. And so life and energy is being passed from, from the sort of God figure, this bearded old man, you know, with, with gray hair, because God in, in art is so often seen as kind of super granddad, you know, knows everything, very wise and old to this beautiful figure of, of Adam, who is this virile, muscular, kind of wonderful nude guy, um, getting the, the, the energy passed to him. So, I mean, it's a very basic idea, but it's, if you think about it, it's quite a hard idea to visualize. You know, you think, you're, think yourself back 500 years, how are you going to paint that, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's got to invent a whole new way of suggesting God created the first human being. Um, but the, the so that's all fairly straightforward, really, and and it's all to do with what's actually going on in the Sistine Chapel because you can't just look at this one picture on its own. There's a whole massive, great football field of yes. other images all the way around it, which I mean uh, is one, in my opinion, the greatest the greatest artwork ever. You know, frankly. Oh wow! Um, but but it all needs to be sort of read and understood and followed. When right in the middle is this the, the creation of, of Adam, but around God. There's a cluster of figures. So he's got um, his arm around a female figure and there are various other figures mm-hmm. in, in sort of cloud in which God is. And those are the bits that have uh, had some controversy. You know, the, the people have, have argued about who these figures represent. I mean, I personally don't think there's much doubt about it. You know, he's got his arm around a female figure. I think that has to be at Eve, really. Yes. I mean, who else is going to be up there on the cloud with God yes. when Adam's being created? So I, think, I think that's Eve. And then maybe their descendants, um, therefore the sort of 12 tribes of Israel. But it's not it's not the most pertinent thing in the world about it. The most pertinent thing about it in the world is that when you look up, you walk into the Sistine Chapel, you see this fantastic view. And the perspective, of course, is terribly important. If you're looking at it from the right angle, you know, it's a cinematic thing happening above your head. The, the world, you know, the uh, humanity is being created by God. Um, and it's just done with these two big figures dominating the center of the ceiling and, and really exploding this image into you. And just a fantastic, fantastic piece of art. Amazing. We love that. So I've mm. I've actually been to the Sistine Chapel and it was a few years ago. And I'd like to go back and see it again now and see it through a, a fresh pair of eyes, having done some of this research that we'd done. Um, but yeah. one of the things we were wondering is, and I think you've covered it there, really, is is why is this one piece from such a magnificent room full of paintings being you know, given the most credit? And uh, do you think it's, as you're saying there, it's because this is the creation of life? Yeah, and also um, in terms of the actual composition of the whole thing. If you've been to the Sistine Chapel, you will know that it's very confused. It, it's wonderful, it's glorious, it's magnificent. But it's also quite confusing. You know, there's so many things happening up there. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know what to look at. And so these two figures tend to dominate. You know, there's a sort of stillness to them uh, and a bigness to them. And uh, because they're on the roof as well, as opposed to the sides, in a lot of the paintings in the Sistine Chapter on the sides, yes. just underneath the roof. 
um, it, it just all the lines seem to lead to them. You know, it's 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 there's a sort of pictorial magic to it that it just grabs your attention. It's there at the center, um, and of course they're big, they're big figures, and um, they're, they're, there's a simplicity to to the way that he's presented this big idea, which. In, in a way is different from what's happening around it. Around it, things get very complicated, lots of mm-hmm. very deep biblical stories going on and you might need to know quite a lot to understand them and there's all this, there's whatever it is, 400 figures up there, you know. But this is just this moment of stillness that that captivates you. Um, uh, can I tell you a story? Um, in, oh God, long, long ago now, it must be about 30 years ago, not, not long after I stopped being a student, um, they were restoring the Sistine ceiling, right? And, um, through help of one of my lecturers, I was able to go up on the scaffold. Right, oh, wow. Right up there wow. while they were restoring it. So close that I could touch the ceiling. And it just so happened that at the time they were restoring the creation of Adam. Okay. So I was close enough to it to touch it, right? And just above my head, there it was. And from close up, oh, my God, it's such a wonderful piece of painting. So Adam's penis... You know, there's a really small, people make jokes about this <laughs> tiny little penis he's got. It's one brushstroke. It's just one brushstroke. In fact, you know when you go into a, a, a gent's toilet and someone's done some graffiti of a, of a penis and, and a pair of balls? <laughs> it's exactly like that. And, and when you're up there, you see Michelangelo had such a great time, such a great sense of humor. There's all these wonderful flashes of painting where he's just obviously just having fun. He's up there all day. You might as well enjoy yourself while you're painting. And so there's some comic figures. There's some brilliant bits of quick painting. So it's not laborious, it's not slow. And, and this is the great thing about fresco, because, uh, you know, fresco has to be painted in a day. You know, the, do you know Liam, do you know how frescoes are done? That, you know, that was going to be my next question. I was, right. it, it's something to do with, don't they put paint in the plaster, and then they, when they plaster the ceiling, it, it is a painting. Yeah. Something like that? So, something like that, indeed, yeah. But the key thing is, right, the way you do a fresco is you put plaster, wet plaster, on a patch of ceiling or wall, and then you paint it. So it's got to be wet when the paint goes into the plaster, otherwise it doesn't dry properly. Okay. So you can only do that much in a day. So if you think about it. If you if you do a huge bit of plastering, then you've got to paint all that yes. before it dries in a few hours. And um, if you do a small bit, it's usually better because... It's just easier to do a smaller bit before it dries. So it's a very um, fragile technique. You know, it's a difficult, really demanding technique. And if you follow Michelangelo through the Sistine Chapel, and he starts off doing small bits, they're called giornata, which is from the Italian giornata, which means a day. So today's work is what Oh, wow. Okay. Right? So you can count the days that he painted on there, because every day you just do a bit, right? But they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, the giornata. So if he started at the other end of the ceiling, by the time he gets to the altar end, which is nearer to where Adam and, and the creation is, he was doing these great big scenes at the size of a wall. You know, okay. they're, they're, they could, he'd get his, his blokes to plaster it up and he could do these amazing, big, ambitious things. And, and his paintwork gets quicker and quicker. To do that, his brush starts to move quicker. So it's a bit like Impressionism or something where, you know, he paints like someone like Matisse in the 20th century, just incredibly quick and varied paintbrush, paint strokes. And the Adam picture is just, it's just sort of before he gets too quick almost. It's just absolute perfection. It's a huge, big giornata, but the, the technique, if you get close to it, you know, it's just magic. It's just so glorious, so brilliantly done. 
So um, that was a, one of the most exciting days of my life, actually. One of the most wow. exciting days of my life. As an art critic, to go up to the Sistine ceiling, touch touch Adam, be there underneath it, see what Michelangelo could do. Um, I mean, they're just astonishing. And the other pictures we've talked about, I think there's some room for... Um, but for, for for doubt about you know, do they deserve their fame? Is, is their uh, fame yeah. there for other reasons? With this, it, it, that's not true. You know, the Sistine ceiling as a whole, and this scene in particular, is just as good as art gets. I think. Wow. But it, it took him. It took him. Did it take four years? We read to do this. To do. I mean, to do all of it. Um, yeah, but a lot of that time was spent thinking. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Okay. So looking at it, you know, staring around and changing his mind. Um, the, the the thing is that once he started painting, it, it, it didn't take him four years of giornata, of daily daily pictures. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. As you said that, I thought no. can't, there can't be twelve hundred different bits on the wall. Well, good maths. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no. And so he would he'd sit and stare. It took him ages to get going on it, of course. And then you know, artists are like they they they, they ponder, they wonder, they change their mind. Um, and then there's this whole storyline about whether the Pope got involved and totally oh, yes. different things. Oh yes, fled to that, Florence. All that sort of stuff going on, um, but I think in the end, I mean, it, 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 the difficulty of it has, to a degree, been exaggerated. I think the fact that it took four years, well, yeah. it did, but uh, a lot of that time was was not spent painting; it was spent thinking about it, planning it, and also once he was up there, you can just tell from when you see the the paintwork that he was having quite a lot of fun up there. And so, also the I don't know if you've read any of the stories about Michelangelo lying on his back paint dripping into his eyes and the torture of it all and you know um uh they, he wrote a, a poem about it which i think was meant to be kind of comic a comic poem you know one of those sort of poems like, oh my god my back hurts oh i had a terrible time yeah. doing it okay um but in reality you know they rebuilt the scaffold when they did the restoration exactly as he had had used it so they used his designs his holes in the wall and rebuild it exactly as he did it. And frankly, you could walk around up there with plenty of space and just paint a little bit above your head. It's a lot easier to do it than people tend to imagine. And because of that, he was free up there than people think. And so I think it's one, another of the reasons why. I mean, it's such a, a breathtaking piece of painting. We like the story about the red cloud in which God is sat being anatomically correct for a brain. And just yeah. Michelangelo, with him being a sculpture, was so um, into the, the the particular sizes and the, the the correct anatomical correctness of of things. So that we thought that was quite good. Or we also read it could actually resent, represent more of birth and a uterus. There's different theories again on on that. Yeah, I'm afraid we're back to the balls here. <laughs> um, really? Yeah, yeah. You know, people can't let an image alone without seeing stuff in it. Um, it's it, it's it's nothing. I don't. You know, it, it, lots of things could be said to resemble vaguely a brain. Um, I bought a mango this morning. I enjoyed it a lot. It's vaguely brain shaped. Um, you know, people see faces in clouds. People people see pools of oil and decide that it looks like um, you know the outline of Africa. Okay. Um, I, I honestly don't think that anything like that is going on there. It, it, look, this is the Pope's private chapel. The Pope. Uh, in 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 fifteen oh eight when it was commissioned whatever when he started painting it was the most powerful figure in christianity um you know you're not going to play visual games and bring ideas like that into something which is wow. basically a commission where you do what you're told by the most powerful figure in your religion okay so uh, all that is just projection of twentieth century 
fantasies. Um, sorry to be brutal about it. No, that's good. There's enough going on in there that's that's truthful and interesting without having to invent sort of you know the other stuff. That's brilliant. That's why we interview experts like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, only so much on. Google, YouTube, reading books and things. There's only so much we can find out uh, without asking yeah. somebody who's a pro. Well, the- uh, it's such a great painting that, of course, it encourages people to... Everybody gets interested in it and, and, the, and people start seeing things in it. That's, that's all perfectly normal. But mm-hmm. um, that's it. The real things in it are good enough without having to invent all sorts of other stuff. The last painting that we covered was The Scream. And the first thing that took me by surprise that I wasn't aware of is that there isn't just one picture painting of The Scream and there are there are multiple versions. Is there one, in your opinion, that's better than the others? Oh, um, well, I think, is it? Oh, so you've got me there. I think there are four versions of it, four, mm. as it were, main versions of it. Um, two are paintings, uh, one's earlier, one's later. Um, and then the two are pastels, aren't they? Which are yes, pastels. Yeah, um, the the two paintings are both fantastic. Um, the one, the famous one, the the, yeah, the one that everybody sort of tends to go to is the one in the museum in Oslo. So that's the National Museum in Oslo. Mm-hmm. And there's another one in the Munch Museum, um, which, will, which was all the stuff in it. The Munch, when he died, he left it to the, to the state. There's a special Munch Museum devoted to him. Um, and they're they're pretty similar, really. Um, certainly, in terms of their impact, the, the thing that makes them work, there's no real difference. Um, the obviously the original one, which I think was painted in what was 1893, wasn't it? Um, I mean, just think about that. 1893. You know, I think what was happening in British art at the time. You know, we still had pre-Raphaelites painting King Arthur and, and Guinevere. Um, you know, jousting on the in the in the in the in the castle of Camelot. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 our art was so behind the times, and then this guy in Norway of all bloody places, you know, paints this image which is just so progressive. I mean, even today, it seems mm. like strikingly modern and ahead of its time. Um, that's what made it so special. I mean, there's nothing like it in art before. And pretty much nothing like it after it, it just popped up out of nowhere as this absolutely extraordinary image which seemed to uh, encapsulate people's um, emotions and anxieties so so well and um what uh, what does it actually represent what what's being depicted in this picture because we'd read that it's not actually somebody screaming but that he's covering his ears up from nature screaming is that something along those lines uh, Yes, I mean, I suppose so, yeah. I mean, uh, without being rude, I'm right. He looks a little bit like you, Liam, you know, um, in the sense that, <laughs> you know, he's, he's got a sort of shaven head, got a tough guy, big cheekbones, right? Um, and uh, if you pulled the wrong look, I reckon you could get away. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. Um, the story is that Monk was walking along one evening across this bridge in, in, in Oslo um, and... Um, suddenly the sky turned bright red as it does, you know, there's a sort of massive sunset and he thought that he heard the scream of nature, I think is the exact quote. I heard the scream of nature. So um, what he was trying to paint was this idea that the world was screaming and that, and that the, um, the sound, the embodiment of that, of that scream was this red sky that was sort of anxious and, and turbulent. Um, but we tend to think it's the figure that's screaming, mm. don't we? Because he's sort of 
twisted in, into this contorted expression, skull-like expression, the sort of Liam-like look with the <laughs> hands pressed, hands pressed against his ears. So um, it's it's again, it's what we've taken away from it. I think that is probably what's made it so famous, rather than what it intended it to be originally. Mm-hmm. Um, because what it's since become is a kind of perfect image, really, of, of human anxiety, isn't it? I mean, yeah. of, of, of a problematic world, of people cracking up, all that sort of stuff that we have to deal with day in, day out. Um, it just seems an embodiment of that. But it wasn't what he intended. I think he, want, he, he wanted something specifically um, sort of more Norwegian um, and to do with that sort of Ibsonian ideas of, of despair and, and the darkness of nature. So um, again, it's like well, it's the whole thing we said at, right at the beginning with the, the Mona Lisa. Because nobody's 100% certain exactly what's going on here, they all want to pile in and have their opinion, don't they? Okay. Including me right now. So yeah. it's it's this good old trick that art does of leaving enough space for everybody to have an idea about it. And one of the things we'd read is that that's where the scream emoji nowadays come from. As you were saying, it sort of depicts modern life as well, that whole scream emoji. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. I think the actual emoji is based, um, you know, the one that's sort of purple face or something, isn't it? Um, is based on, on the scream, yeah, yeah. Um, which is wonderful um, testimony to, to, to its impact, isn't it? Yes. But what I do know about it is... Um, I I, uh, I haven't made a film about, uh, about Monk's screen, but I have made a film about <laughs> Gauguin, the great painter Gauguin. He was a sort of friend of Monk's, and, and Gauguin grew up in Peru. I don't know if you know that, but he he, no. he he spent the first seven years of his life in Peru. So he spoke Spanish as his first language, and only then he moved to France. So he was um, obsessed with sort of Peruvian culture. His mother used to collect Peruvian pots and all that sort of stuff. Um, and one of the things that he's supposed to have seen when he was a kid was um, a Peruvian mummy because the, the, um, the uh, pre-Columbian um, inhabitants of Peru, when they buried their dead, they used to bury them in, in these vases. And the people would be embalmed with their legs pulled up against their chest, their arms folded in front of them, and these skull-like faces looking out, right? And there are lots of these, these mummies in that position in, in Peru. But in the, um, uh, I think it was the, the International Exhibition in Paris, um, sometime, I think it was, was it 1889 or 1890, sometime around then, um, all the nations of the world sent their stuff over, including England, to Paris to show how great okay. they were. And one of the things that they sent over was the Peruvians sent over a Peruvian mummy, um, which uh, Monk certainly could have seen, and Gauguin definitely did see. And Gauguin did a whole series of paintings in which he he referenced this sort of figure with a face exactly like the screen. It's basically uh-huh. a skull. You know, it's a skull of a mummy. Yes. That all the skins tightened and nearly died. Um, and they say that Monk, who was a close friend of Gauguin's, probably saw it as well, would have been referencing that. And I have to say, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced by that idea um, because uh, it is a skull-like image, obviously, but but it, I, don't, I don't think it's meant to be a skeleton. Um, and ideas of, of people being buried and uh, eternity being foisted upon them and the sort of whole idea of a mummy surviving into the modern world, all those things, um, would have tickled Monk's fancy, I think. So I, I suspect that the actual reason that he came up with this extraordinary face, I mean, you know, out of nowhere, how did he yes. come up with a face like that in, in yes. 1893? Yeah. was perhaps because he'd seen it in this mummy and it, it struck about on a chord with him. This, we were wondering, and it's related to, to the scream, how it was stolen twice. And we mentioned earlier that the Mona Lisa was stolen as well. We were just wondering out of interest, so is there really a black market for 
super famous pieces of art and would people then want to purchase them and then just store them away and them never see the light of day again does does that actually happen i wish i could answer you in some knowledgeable way on that one um <laughs> i genuinely don't know i mean obviously we all know the myths you know there the, the, and there are certain storylines that we do know can be backed up i mean there's a great caravaggio painting um, a nativity that was stolen from palermo in switzerland um by the mafia um, and the story is that it, it, it got passed around between uh, mafia bosses as sort of collateral. So when okay. a mafia boss owed another mafia boss something, instead of paying him in money, he paid him in his Caravaggio picture. Um, and and that, there is documentary evidence of sorts to, to, to support that. Um, but the, I, I personally don't think that this idea of the kind of super collector who, who sends out um, teams of, of bad guys um, to collect, his greatest pictures that he wants, you know, his bucket list of great artworks. Yes. And that's somewhere in California or somewhere in St. Petersburg, there's this mansion full of famous lost pictures. Um, I don't think that is probably true. I think in most cases, certainly with Monk, we know for a fact in most cases, I mean, it's just um, human incompetence that is the reason for it. You know, the security <laughs> guard wasn't working or the, they left a window open in the loo and someone sneaked in or, or I was with the Mona Lisa, he just walked out with it under his coat. Um, you know, it, unfortunately, human beings are fallible, aren't they? And, and most museums are just not as well protected as we'd like to think they are. And because of the enormous amounts of money that art fetches, I mean, yeah, un unbelievable amounts of money. Mm. And you think what, you know, the last time the, 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 one of the pastel versions of the screen was sold, you know, whatever it was, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, that's going to be an enormous temptation. So people are going to walk in and, 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 and try and steal stuff. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's more a case of opportunists and chances than okay. it is of any super so, mastermind. Are there any um, pieces of art that have gone missing then? You know, like, oh, yeah. the, we just don't know where they've gone. Like, have they been stolen? Or... Oh, there's there's several. There's a few very famous ones. Um, as I said, there's the Caravaggio, the mafia is supposed to have in Palermo. There was the uh, famous theft of a, of a Rembrandt. Um, from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. I mean, that was somebody walked in and they stole, they came at nine, they stole three or four of the most famous paintings in, the, in that museum. They're still out there somewhere. Um, I mean, lots of paintings have been stolen. The Vermeer that's near me in um, uh, Kenwood House in, uh, in Hampstead Heath, you know, that got stolen, turned up, I think it did turn up in Ireland or somewhere. Um, there, there are a lot of paintings that, that, that I mean, you know, most famously of all, perhaps the, the great painting by Van Eyck in Ghent, the mystic, the adoration of the mystic lamb, this massive altarpiece, which is supposed to be the first great oil painting in the whole of history. So, I mean, you can't, you can't get more important than that. Um, there's a panel there that's missing. Uh, somebody walked out with it. Have you seen that film, The Monuments Men, with George Clooney? No. Uh, where they all go to Germany because the Nazis tried to steal all the art from Europe um, during the Second World War. And they found the uh, adoration of the mystic lamb in this in this tunnel or cave somewhere in Germany. Oh, That's okay. kind of a true story. The, okay. the Nazis were collecting, for Goering wanted to collect a great big art collection, so they stole lots of paintings. Wherever, wherever they invaded, they stole some pictures, right? Uh, but they, well, before they even got there, someone had already stolen a bit of the adoration of the mystic yeah. lamb. It's still missing. So um, that that panel is now re represented by a kind of reproduction, but that someone made you know, much later, but it's still gone. So there's lots of lots of pictures that um, uh, yeah, that, that have been stolen that are still missing. 
And is, oh. uh, come to think of it, Ollie, what is that behind your head there on the wall? The, the, <laughs> the picture of the telephone box. Um, that, that is that. a combination of Banksy. Yeah. Uh, originals as well, aren't <laughs> they? I'm sure they're originals, yeah. So anybody, anybody uh, listen to this podcast, if you're after a picture painting with a telephone box in it, Ollie's got it. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk about the four pieces that we covered this week. Um, I know you mentioned one earlier, but are there any others that you think in the world that is really worth us being aware of and considering then for future topics? Oh, dear me. Listen, now that you're interested in art, you will you'll never have to ask me a question like that because there is so much great art out there. It's such a fascinating doorway into so many interesting topics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a doorway into history, into religion, into sport, into politics, into I mean, into everything. Um, it, the list is endless of things that you, that you you could be interested in. Um, you just need to go out and see some stuff. And, and you know, the great thing about art is it enters you through your eyes. It's totally democratic. You don't need to know anything. If you like it, that's enough. You know, you see it, you like it. Find out more about it. I suppose the only the only thing I would say to you is that the more you kind of learn about stuff, the more it means, right? Yes, you can absolutely true. That's it. And so, oh, just go out there and look at museums. There's nothing better. I tell you, I've, I've managed to make a living out of it, and it's the greatest thing that could possibly happen to me because art is a bottomless pit of enjoyment. I mean, you know, art first, football second. I tell you, if you like those two things, you're made in life. <laughs> fantastic well thank you very much Valdemar thank you for taking the time we yeah. really appreciate thank you so much getting yeah. your insights Love. on that nice and talking to you yeah thank you wow Liam that was brilliant wasn't it talking to Valdemar about those four pieces of art hey how enthusiastic is he about art it just it rubs off on you it's just so interesting listening to somebody when they've got that level of enthusiasm about something it just draws you in yeah yeah absolutely i loved that part at the end as well which we've learned about with other subjects such as with wine and what have you that it doesn't need to be pretentious and if you like a piece of art then you like it it's as simple as that you don't Mm -hmm. need to know everything about it if something appeals to you then you can enjoy it I like, do you know what I like, strangely? I like that some of the things we find out aren't always necessarily true. Yeah. And I think that's great that we have an actual expert come on and say, look, do you know what? Google, YouTube, books, whatever, they're not always 100% accurate. And that although they're sort of true, these things are, are not as you think they are. And I think that's great. And that, you know, just gives us a bit more credibility, I think, about the things we've learned. Definitely. We hope everybody listening really enjoyed that episode as well. Um, if you have any other questions that you'd like us to pose to Valdemar, let us know. Get in contact with us at Two Guys One Topic on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. I hope you enjoyed it. Get out there and share some knowledge. Mm-hmm.